Hello, uh, this is Ross Carpenter, and this is my new podcast, Comedy Jam. And with me tonight is none other than Mark Kempner. Hello, Mark. Good evening, Ross. How are you? Very well, thank you. I'm very nervous. <clears throat> this is the uh, first time I've ever been this side of the uh, podcast camera. Don't make me nervous. Nothing could be nervous or... Um, well, I've got uh, you know a couple of couple of drinks here, some uh, some tea and some water, so I'm on the hard stuff. Uh, harder than you, I've got a. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, do you ever get nervous yourself when you're getting ready for filming, or? You no, know, I probably get more nervous when I'm interviewed than I do when I'm actually filming in front of the camera because um, I'm always slightly worried I might say something that is either cobblers or or offensive but I'll, I'll try not to do either yeah and they normally go hand in hand as well don't they but a couple isn't offensive um i've i've only been interviewed uh, a few times on podcasts and the first time i remember being you know just a bag of nerves heading in and uh and it was fine because the the person interviewing put me at ease yeah. um but i'm not going to put you at ease very much Your job for me. <laughs> yeah okay so um uh you were uh Born in Surrey, I think, and worked in farming at, yeah, at the start. Yeah, Surrey Dairy Farm near Gatwick Airport. In fact, it was going to be the site for the original Gatwick Airport, but they swapped at the last minute to the old race course. Oh, I see. Current Gatwick, a little bit of useless information there. And, uh, and when you were younger, um, what was your sort of first comedy, um, your knowledge of getting into comedy and, and, and enjoying well, you know what? Watching. It's a reminder because um, various school friends, as Facebook kind of grew in the early days, well, I can't remember how long I've been on Facebook for now, 12 years or whatever, and um, various school friends made contact, and they reminded me that I used to go to school and do lots of impressions of Monty Python. Oh, okay. Um, I, I, I guess it was so. I guess it was Monty Python, really, that kind of I became a little bit obsessive about. Mm-hmm. I had been obsessive about it, but, but, but then it was like 30, 40 years previous to when they reminded me. Yeah. Showing my age, I know I only look about 30. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so I guess Monty Python was one of my first real loves. And, and did you use that to, I mean, when you were at school quoting Monty Python, did that kind of ingratiate you with people? Did that, is it that, did you have a link with people? Because it entertained my class friends, but I don't think it entertained the teachers that well. They completely approved. I don't think my father approved of it as well. Stop watching this rubbish. Yeah, quite an, an anarchic kind yeah, of comedy. Right. I, I liked it because it was it was quite anarchic. And um, no, yes, it, it, it made it made a few teachers laugh who were obviously into Monty Python, but um, they, they they didn't dare admit to it in the middle of a math lesson or whatever. Yeah, indeed. Um, yeah, no. So I, I guess Monty Python was one of my first real loves. Because I mean, I remember the first time I, you know, knew that I was incredibly funny was um, when <laughs> when I was in, doing my A levels and Friends had just started, and I think I just m- sort of mimicked um, Chandler from Friends at school, mm-hmm. quoting uh, and sort of speaking in the same sort of way that he would speak, not necessarily the same script, but. Um, and I got people laughing, um, and I think that was probably the first time at the age of about eighteen, seventeen. Um, and then you know, the hit history. School chums and teachers. What's that? Sorry. 
that ingratiate you to your teachers and school chums? Well, I mean, <clears throat> they didn't like me still, but it, it, at least they laughed and didn't like me. So it was it was it was good that way. Um, and then I went to university, and you know, I, felt, I sort of found myself, I think, and made people laugh just all the time, and it was uh, pretty 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 good then. I kind of. I think my school report said if Mark Kempner were to uh, if if Mark were to concentrate and knuckle down a bit more instead of quoting Monty Python, um, he'd do better. <laughs> I never did. They never mentioned Chandra in my reports, but um, yeah, but, uh, uh, so so when you um, <clears throat> you you moved to Israel, didn't you? I went to Israel in 1975 uh, to a kibbutz where I was out there for just on a year. Okay, and, and in that time, you set up a sort of touring comedy troupe? Well, what happened was, um, at Passover time on the kibbutz, they made quite a thing of it, obviously, and, and they included some entertainment. And me and uh, I think two or three other volunteers uh, got together and we wrote some little sketches and I did some impressions of some of the... Uh, people that lived on the kibbutz and it went down a storm luckily i mean everyone was pretty drunk anyway on, on cheap wine but uh it went down well and there was someone there from another kibbutz nearby and they said oh you must come over on a friday night and um and and do a little show for us so we did that and that just led to kind of going around not too many but we went around two or three i think maybe probably about five different kibbutzes within a sort of 20 mile radius and um we just wrote i mean we just made it up really uh on on the spur of the moment we looked like we'd been rehearsing but we hadn't really um had a few bottles of wine uh and it was all good fun like an israel footlights i guess exactly yeah exactly especially for the kibbutzniks and i think i'm not sure they all understood it but <laughs> they, they uh, I mean, they speak very good English, but um, I can't remember any of the sketches that we did. But um, it was all rather silly and probably a bit of Monty Python, no doubt. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Taking those influences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I notice you've got Yiddish as one of your 33 accents uh, <laughs> on your got? website. Yeah, including uh, standard Scottish, standard Welsh and general American, which seemed yeah. quite generic. You know, with, with actors, really, what it's about is um, the, the the casting directors say the rule of thumb is if you can fool the locals, then you can say you can do that accent. And if you can't fool the locals, um, then you shouldn't put it on your CV. So I try and put the ones I know I can do well, but um, mm. that I can do at the drop of a hat. And there's a few I need to work on. I've just done an audition, funny enough, to be a kind of... Um, Joe Petchy character. Oh, yeah. Herschel. So I downloaded Goodfellas and watched that till about three in the morning, which is a bloody good film anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one I enjoy watching. So just to remind me of that kind of New York Bronxy um, accent, you know, but didn't do me any good because I haven't heard anything yet. But <laughs> never mind. It's COVID. People are, you know, slow in responding. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They're probably still marveling at it. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, you were in Peep Show um, as a driving instructor, and um, there's a vi there's a clip on YouTube. Yeah, just a, just a small um, guest role. I played uh, Mark's driving instructor. Which, uh, yeah, that was that was quite an experience. But I hadn't really watched a lot of Peep Show, um, 
And so I did watch a couple of episodes before I went off to do the uh, casting and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it's quite a weird way they shoot that. Um, yeah, I was going to ask, because yeah. in the scene specifically, they zoom, well, they obviously film very close up, uh, or it's at least that, appears it, to. It's a very tight frame normally, but also that you're looking straight down the camera. So if I were talking to you, I can see you there, but... It, I would be looking straight down the lens like I am now, if that mm. works on a webcam. And um, it's quite bizarre because uh, David Mitchell was sort of behind the camera to give an eye line. But normally when you have an eye line behind the camera, you're sort of, if that's the camera, you'd be kind of there looking at the uh, at the actor who's, who's being filmed. Um, but in this case, it had to be straight down the lens. You couldn't really see his eye line anyway. So that, that was a bit bizarre, but um, it was only a few lines. So. And when they filmed him, did they have to lean across your lap with the camera? No, no, no. The camera was because we were obviously in a car. Um, no, the they camera was outside the window. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> Windows down and it's looking that way. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> um, we um, met on the set of This Country, um, filming The Aftermath, and I remember you coming up to me and asking me for an autograph and yeah. how yeah. much you admired my work. How you were doing hanging around in my scene, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, so what was it like? Um, I mean, how did you firstly get that, get that role? Well, there's a bit of a story there, because actually I was in an episode uh, playing um, a chap who really done his eye in when Kerry had done broken her leg although when she thought she'd broken her leg in that episode yeah and um there was a scene between me so I'm sitting there with my eye all bleeding and coming out and when she got taken away I had a scene with uh Charlie uh so me and Kurt and, and we were talking about I was trying to engage him in conversation and he was sort of reading a magazine and then he started asking me a few questions and I started to feel sick. And the scene would end with me going, sort of fainted on top of him. And we were rolling around the floor for an afternoon with uh, Charlie Cooper, which was great fun. Um, <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the dump gang members would, uh, would, would, would enjoy him. The director phoned me and said, we're not going to use it. Because we're, we, we're, we're just, you know, we've overshot, as often the way with these sorts of programmes, they, they, they shot more than they needed um so something had to give so it's the old actor's curse of ending up on the cutting room floor um but he said we will use you we will use you because we, we really like working with you and i thought yeah right of course you will anyway sure enough uh the aftermath came along and um i went in and they were doing uh, everyone was there mm -hmm. uh, the main cast and they were doing a like a rehearsal kind of improvisation and that's how they how they wrote a lot of it based on the improvisation and um the director said to me uh he said i want you and charlie to go and walk around Burford, uh go and lose yourself for an hour and uh me be um the bowls manager terry and obviously charlie being cut and um without telling me he passed a note to um charlie to say come up with lots of ideas for the club and without charlie knowing i'd got a note that said sack him <laughs> uh, so yeah. his ideas were the ideas of what to do as as an employee 
I don't know, Wally of the Year, Wally of the Year mug, that kind of thing. Yeah. So so we we end, actually we went straight to the pub to be quite honest with you. So we we went to the pub, which is the pub they use as the keepers. I've forgotten yeah. the name of the, the actual pub. You'd know. Uh, Sherborne Arms. Sherborne Arms. Yeah. We were hanging around there for a long time. <laughs> yes. Um, and um, so we sat there talking away, and all of a sudden, obviously thinking I didn't know, well, I didn't know that he was going to start asking me, you know, I've got some great ideas. And I'll go, yeah, I've heard it all before, Kurt. And the thing is, I'm going to have to let you go. And that was a shock to him. So we just improvised from the second we went out of the um, village hall there where, where they rehearsed. And um, all the way for about an hour and a half, we had a couple of pints and then went back and we just improvised the whole time. And then we went back and they interviewed us on camera. And that caused quite a lot of frivolity. Uh, and this was all just an audition. Um, but um, at the end of it, they said, great, we'll use you. Yeah, you're going to be Terry, the Bowls manager. Fantastic. So that's how it all came about. Yeah, of course. And and what was it like working with Daisy? Um, I mean, obviously, Charlie, obviously, you had a lot of fun working in that in, in that interview. They're both great. They're both very laid back and they're, they're extremely um, nice people. Yeah, um, I mean, I was struck by how welcoming they I found are. her. It's just a very, very friendly set, friendly crew, friendly cast, yeah. uh, you know, and, and with great script. So, you know, you can't go far wrong, really. Great character. Um, I've completely forgotten the question you asked me. Oh, what was it like <laughs> working with uh, working with the two of them? Um, no, great. Well, there we go. I was answering it. Um, they, it, it was really good. Daisy is such a screen. In fact, the first time I really, I, I met Daisy when, I was going to be a voiceover um, playing one of her dad's uh, friends on CB radio, but they didn't use the scene. So we went to a recording studio in Siren, I think it was, in Sirencester. And that's where I met her properly then. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know until that time that she played the role of mother. So she was... Oh, of course, Sue, yeah. The, uh, the the crumpets line, you know, the holes. I can't find the holes in my crumpet. Turn them up the other way, you know. Oh, I am pleased. So we were swapping lines and swapping sort of ideas. She said, what should I say? And I said, oh, no, you know, so I can't remember, but it came out. It was mostly Daisy's work. And that's where those, uh, that's where those lines were done. So that's when I first met Daisy. So you were a consultant to, to the writer. Quite <laughs> important to be asked. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that scene obviously very, very well, because I was um, an extra in that show, in that episode. And, uh, I remember my delight when I got switched places with John Neville, I think, who was the uh, extra uh, on the other side of the table to you, meaning yeah. I was then in shot, and uh, and that was my big moment. So you are. I was quite pleased at the switch. Well, I thought you played it brilliantly. Uh, I know they cut the bit where you were going. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I thought, no, I thought you played it very, very well. Because you won a prize, didn't you? Didn't you win a prize? That's right, yeah. Um, she wore those uh, red high heels in the BAFTAs. In, what was it 2017 i think um on stage in swindon town dress and i won a raffle to win the shoes but that also came with a with an extra shot so, right mm. have you worn them much I've, I've worn them uh i've worn them on stage at um the live this country show wtaf and uh and, yeah I wore them. That was, I was at that one wasn't i wasn't i was um it? i don't oh I don't oh. think you were that one. No, I think it was um, Slugs, uh, Michael Sleggs, um, uh, and then there was Paul Cooper. 
and Trevor Cooper was there as well. Uh, right, no, I wasn't at that one. I did the next one, I think, at the Dahl. Right. Yeah. You get yourself on stage there as well. What was that for? I got myself on stage because we had uh, different competitions to enter beforehand, drawing one, um, designing, I can't remember, designing a scarecrow, that kind of thing. Uh, and also, I was, of course, I had my head all over the backdrop um, for ages. Uh, remember, yeah. And all of those uh, backdrops. That was a funny thing. <laughs> um, so, wh- so where would you, um, obviously, t- Terry was written out following that that. Mm. episode um they obviously went a different tangent with curtain not working at the bowls club any longer um have you ever worked in hospitality yourself well i i have a company that does corporate uh, entertainment so that's about as near as i come to doing hospitality i've not done sort of bar work or anything like that i mean i've lent on a few and <laughs> the counter but um no i've not actually worked directly in hospitality um but um that is my direct answer <laughs> no that was the answer to that yeah Did you ask her no next <laughs> now um something you mentioned um recently was the fact that you um worked with david jason um one time uh that came about see when i very first started i i didn't go to drama school i was an engineer right up until how long have i been an actor about 30 ish years now and i started out um doing extra work because i was in a play one of my last plays i did before turning professional uh there was a guy in it who uh was a professional actor and to earn some money on the side he did a bit of extra work and he said oh you should do that and uh, i started doing that and i ended up as an extra uh as a postman ernie the postman on um darling buds of may okay yeah and um, it was David, really, that said when the, the scene was, he turns up on a bike and gives some letters to to, to Poplarkin, to David. And David said, well, you can't have a few lines. That's ridiculous, you know. So David just started, he said, I'll, I'll ask you some questions. And I thought, oh, here we are. <laughs> and uh, I thought I'd arrived. This is it, the Hollywood. Absolutely, yeah. Following week. Um, so, so this is around, what, 1991, I think, Darling Buds of May came out, wasn't it? a long time ago it was a long time ago it was after his obviously after his uh only fools and horses I think, I think the clip is on youtube somewhere someone sent me the clip a while back said is this you and i thought it was one of these hoax videos that were going around <laughs> so i was about to say no you you've been hacked but it was i think this is you on a bike as ernie the postman in the darling buds of may but um got, unfortunately a lot of it was filmed from a long way away so uh you hear me more than see me too much but I think I can't remember how many episodes I did. I think I did about two or three. Mm-hmm. Great fun though. Love that was a nut. That was it. It really was. Um, they used to have massive crowds down there where they filmed it in Kent, and of course my scene, all scene arriving at the farm. And um, I think there was one where I was somehow I met them in the village or something, if I remember rightly. And um, oh, there was there was like about three or four hundred people down there to watch it. And it was all push back, push back, push back. Let the actors through. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and one lady came up to me. She said, we run a local charity. And, and we wondered um, if you'd open a fate for us. But I had to be really honest and say, look, I'm not being funny, but I've got about two lines in this. I think you ought to have a word with uh, 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 one, one or two of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely would have milked that 
<laughs> you would have done yeah. I would have it's worth i know i'd have had them making posters <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah i'll do it i'll do it absolutely no so i, I didn't feel that in my early days that i was brave enough to say um I, I think i said to her well if you ask them um you know and they're happy with it i don't mind coming down to do it i thought well i'll lord it about for a day in kenya absolutely and what was david like he's great he's very very funny um very professional Mm-hmm. and uh, he wanted it exactly right, you know, what's happening there, what's happening there, which side of the bike we were, and what was happening, when, what line I'd be passing in the letters. So very professional, um, and I learned a heck of a lot of him, in, uh, to be honest. Um, and I realised that, one, it, it's not rocket science, mm. but there's a protocol on set, and uh, I... I I very much enjoyed, I remember the first day I wasn't used. And the first thing he really said to me was when we started to do our first scene together, he said, weren't you here two days ago? And I said, I was, but we, we ran out of time. We said, that was probably my fault. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry, I'm right. being paid twice. Don't worry. <laughs> he said, we've been paying him twice. He said, I can't believe we're paying you. And he was just very nice and natural and yeah. you know, no airs of races and that that's quite that's good you don't think oh i'm going to be on edge because i was you know such a beginner um he made it all very easy i mean i watched um i don't know which i don't think it was the only fools and horses convention i think it was might have even been a david jason appreciation thing or convention and he was on stage and they and someone asked him about uh, mike sullivan and just the way he speaks the way he was engaging with a member in the audience who was just a nobody just calling out a question. He always comes across as very warm um, and not warm, yeah. not very celebrity, not like the typical. Uh, I don't think he's, he's into any of that nonsense. I think the thing with David, I've, I've just bought his um, book, which I haven't read yet, but um, I saw some interviews he was doing about the book and he, 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 he goes into you know, being an actor, you need to start from the beginning because he did masses of rep theatre before he became an actor. So he was he was a little bit against people that just suddenly come out of nowhere and suddenly they're a sort of celebrity. And he's not really into that. So he's very old school. Absolutely. I've read his first book, his, his main autobiography, and then the other one was Only Fools and Stories. Only Fools and Stories. Um, yeah. But the first, the first one was his autobiography, which was yeah. really good and quite. Is a Adele of a life or something like that? I think it's called Adele of something, and um, yeah. So I've, I've only read the first page, so I don't need to, <laughs> so, to sit down and actually um, read the rest of it because he's one of my favourite actors. I mean, he's he's so good at everything he does, and yeah. he's quite timing. He's one of those guys, one of those actors. Whereas me as an actor, I I can look at Only Fools and Horses several times. I start watching, how did he get that laugh? How did he do that? Why did he move there? Why did he take a pause and then hit the line? And um, he's, a cra- he's a craftsman. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of speak about that in the book. Um, in fact, talks at, talks at length about the kind of the roles that Ronnie Barker gave him and other earlier writers. Great friends, of course. And absolutely, yeah. Know, He's finding it a great honour to uh, replace Ronnie Barker in, in open all hours. Yeah. Um, so that must be quite a thrill for him. 
Absolutely, yeah. I haven't really enjoyed the latest uh, um, Open All Hours, though. It's, uh, I think it had its day. I'm a massive fan of it, to be quite honest. I used to adore Ronnie Barker, but I, it, it was one of those, I don't know why, I just never got into it. And it's not because I hated it. I just never got into it, really. We'll skip by that one, then. Yeah, we'll skip by that one. <laughs> okay, Um so this is that you know that was a little bit about yourself um um what i thought we'd do now is talk about a comedy that you particularly love enjoy yeah. your go-to um so i know we have a couple of mutual comedies that we we both really like <clears throat> excuse me um so what comedy what is your go-to well are we going to come on to the uh, our mutual comedies <laughs> I think my go-to, I, I have certain comedy shows which I can watch and watch and watch. Um, Faulty Towers, and they only made about 14 of them, mm. and I must have seen them all so many times. And yet I still find myself, oh, they're repeating them, I'll record that. <laughs> it's ridiculous, I've watched them so many times. Um, so Faulty Towers is one. Dad's Army, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's completely timeless. Um, I think it helps that it's set in a certain time, and obviously during the Second World War. So the costume never dates because it's 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 not. I mean, in a way, I suppose um, Forty Towers looks a bit dated because they're in. You know, when you see the cars, you think back to the early seventies. But yeah, of course, the uh, I, I suppose probably Dad's Army is one I would I would definitely watch and watch and watch. And I found myself watching some because uh, I set on series record and I watched one the other night that I'd seen the week earlier and I've seen it probably 150 times um but again you're watching actors who are proper craftsmen proper actors uh with brilliantly funny characters brilliantly funny scripts and and they just draw me in and you can watch Arthur Lowe and, and watch several of them and or, or, or Fraser when he starts to tell one of his long stories we and the wind was howling and you know it's it was i mean when you boil it all down they were pretty simple scripts weren't they they, they were they were they, they were ludicrous really but absolutely but, one-liners john le Majurier just piping out piping up with something exactly never bothered too much and and these lovely little scenarios in it where he in actual fact i, I think wilson was a real captain in, in the First World War, and of course, uh, 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 um, Mannering wasn't even a captain anyway, he was just self-appointed, wasn't he, as a captain? Mm. So when anything he organised, oh, who'll be in charge of that? So I will. <laughs> so he was always in charge. But they had all these lovely scenarios, and Jones, the silly old fool that was always one step behind, and the dodgy, um, you know, the dodgy geezer, what have you. I mean, they, they were just brilliantly divine characters. And uh, I can watch that and watch that and watch it all day long. I never get bored of it. It's another book I've, I've recently acquired um, that someone gave me on the making of Dad's Army and what have you. So I've got a bit of reading material when we come out of lockdown to go off and have a tour around, sit by the sea and, and read these books. Lovely. And it, and it is those, it's that character writing, isn't it? It's that, you know, the, 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 the writing, the crafting of the comedy before writing the pilot where you're when they when croft and perry wrote that the bbc were very reticent about putting it on because they thought it might offend 
old home guard members or people might Indeed. find offensive in some way that it would, you know, you're just belittling what they did and um, how wrong they were, you know, and they, luckily they took a chance on that and um, it proved to be extremely popular. And also I love the fact, and it might sound a bit old fashioned, I'm not, I'm as broad minded as the next person, but um, it's so clean as well. There's, there's no swearing in it. There's no tiny bits of innuendo but very rare it's just perfect sitcom drafting yeah uh, I, th- I think david jason said about the swearing recently um really? i think he was referencing uh miley cyrus right. or something and, and he was just saying that there's there's just so much unnecessary swearing these days and and, and the cleverness has kind of been lost Docker, but i mean you know it's you don't need to on on camera and I think a lot of stand-up comedy these days, um, now and again, it's sort of, it's fine. I'm not offended by it, but I am offended. Well, not offended. I think, why are you swearing so much? Mm. What's that? I mean, there's a certain game show that's just started. And um, you know, I don't know if I ought to say the name of it, but uh, I won't. Um, but it involves balancing things. And it's run by a chef. And he's swearing. Look, he's effing and blinding. And what's the point of that? That's that's that show. He's he's swearing. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's a that's a, I thought it was like prime time family it's entertainment. Nine o'clock hour, but it, it, you know what's the point? Why you don't have to swear like that? All to be time? honest, I did I did wonder why a chef has been asked to present a game show in the first place. Great show, isn't it? <laughs> um, but uh, the Dad's Army. Um, I don't think you know. Uh, only fools and horses. Uh, only fools and horses. There was never any no vulgarity. No, um, I don't know. Maybe I'm becoming an old, old-fashioned, but I'm not offended by anything like that. Not if it's sort of necessary and it works, then, then that's fine. But if you're just going to plonk something like that in for the hell of it to make it rude, that just to me, I just think, well, I don't, I don't find that funny. Now, I, I, I sort of noticed as I was growing up a sort of transition from one type and genre of comedy into a new, edgier type of comedy. So. For me, it was all sort of around the early 2000s um, or late 1990s. Comedies that were kind of uh, in that band of what I would have said is like the more family-friendly, Man Behaving Badly was the, probably the riskiest, risk, or the most risque comedy at the time. Yeah. The Royal Family had just sort of come into into play. And you had things like The Fast Show, um, Harry Enfield and Chums, that started just to tip the, the balance of edginess in my, in my view. Yeah called Young Poisoner's Fam- uh, Young Poisoner's Handbook or something. I bet it was a true story about a guy that was poisoning his workmates. Uh, he was the apprentice and he was poisoning his workmates. It was a true story. Oh. John Thompson was in that. And oh, yeah, I remember Cold Feet. Yeah, exactly. Um, and we got yakking, you know, uh, in between takes and what have you. And I said, what have you got coming up next? And he said, oh, I'm doing something. I think they're going to call it The Far Show. Um, I don't know. We're doing a we're doing a uh, test run of it. You know, a pilot probably won't go anywhere. And career wise, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because he was later on in, um, I think it was Scissor Dial with Alan Partridge um, as as an insurance. That's right, insurance company owner. Um, yeah. And that was what I was going to come to. Um, so it, it sort of went. I remember being at university, and Alan Partridge had been on since '97. Well, certainly I'm Alan Partridge. 
And then, what was it? I think, I think, knowing me, knowing you was 97, and then 99 was I'm Alan Partridge. Really, 97? I think so, yeah. And then 2002, I think, was the second series. Radio calls. What's that, sorry? Yeah. Yeah, he did the radio show prior. That was. Wasn't it with, um, I'm so bad on names. What what did he do? Was it Brass Eye? He used to be a. Yeah, he was was in um, the day to. No, was it Brass Eye? It was Brass Eye. It was day to day. One of the two. I think you're right, day to day. Yeah. yeah. With Chris uh, Morris. He was a sports reporter. Yeah, that's right. Roving roving reporter. Roving, roving reporter. Yeah. And and I think um and then there was the office obviously beyond that. But I think with Alan Partridge, what I I love um sort of going back to character uh, writing and creation of, of character. Steve Coogan obviously had huge numbers of well very many number of characters that he would do on, on stage. Um and Alan Partridge was the one that sort of stuck uh, and and just went off on its own path. Yeah. Have you seen his live shows? Did you did you get to see? I him? never saw them live. No, no. I, I saw him live when he did the first half as um, Paul Inkoff. No, he came back as Paul Calf after the interval. I think there were three breaks. I can't remember who he was. Oh, maybe it was Paul Calf in in the first half. Then he came back as Paul Inkoff. And then he came back as as Alan Partridge, and the audience just went mental when the curtain went up, and uh, he, he came on as Alan Partridge. Um, and I think Simon Pegg was in that as well as a lighting man, so he would fill in while he was getting changed into Alan Partridge. I think that's how it worked. But that's when I I first really discovered Steve Coogan as as Alan Partridge uh, doing his live stuff. Mm-hmm. He went away and started listening to the radio stuff and the day-to-day. And then when um, his chat show started, you know, I became a, a massive fan. Yeah. I think we, we were – I mean, that that was probably the, the the show that I started quoting mostly when I really first got obsessed with a comedy with that one. Um, but but I've, what I love about it, and I'll always rank Alan Partridge and the world of Alan Partridge – in, as my number one comedy above everything else, The Office, uh, The Thick of It, Inside Number Nine, The League of Gentlemen, whatever. Uh, there was a, was a program. Was it called The Detectives or something? That was the, one of the first mockumentaries about a police force, and that was uh, mock- it. Was Operation Good Guys? Operation Good Guys, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah with Beach and Ash. That's it. That's it. Yeah. No. First mo- well, I say actually. If you think about it, Ross, I don't know that that was the first. I suppose Spinal Tap really broke the mould. Yeah, of course. When when that came out, that that was, uh, and then they went on and did um, Best in Show. Have you seen that? I haven't seen that. No. Hilarious, hilarious, and all about a dog show. Um, but it's the same team, and uh, so I mean that that's going back a bit, isn't it? That was before. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose that's what gave these other guys the idea of doing mockumentary. But yeah. We but I, I mean, I, that era of comedy, of mockumentary. I think so. Yeah, and and I watched um, Operation Good Guys, and that was again late nineties. Mm-hmm. And when you, if you watch that, I think there were three series of of that. And if you watch the episodes back to back, sort of binge watch it, and then you watch The Office, mm-hmm. it's very difficult not to believe that The Office was heavily heavily influenced by Operation Good Guys. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to be totally original. It's just a different scenario. It's... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, even even to the fact you've got uh, Beach, who is the squat um, police in charge, 
and his sidekick, Ash, sort of massaging his shoulders, much like Keenan was doing to, to Brent in the office, yeah. um, helping him doing sit-ups, things like that. And But also the, the, the way that Beach is so sort of dismissive and actually doesn't have the same warmth towards Ash as as is reciprocated. So he'll like chuck his sweaty towel into his face, much like Brent chucking his sweaty shirt into uh, yeah. Dawn's face, for example. Yeah. yeah. Um and 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 I've watched that and I've said said to several people, if you watch that and see funny themes is that they feature a central character, Brent, uh Partridge and 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 Ash is as or Beach is it, that there's they're people that want to be something they're desperate to be someone they're not. Yeah. And in a way, a lot of the central characters in sitcoms, you know, Basil is desperate to be more classy, desperate to have classier clientele and um, and wanted to be free of Sybil the, the whole time. He wanted to just, have, you know, he, he was sort of under pressure the yeah. whole time, wasn't he? Um, Mannering, desperate to be, have recognition all the time. Brent just wants to be loved. He just wants that recognition. Absolutely, Partridge. The frightening thing is, you find yourself sitting. I met you, but I find myself sitting there going, well, I, "I think, I think that." But not, not that I'm desperate for recognition. But I think when when Alan is going, "Well, they should be doing this or whatever, whatever," and I think, "Yeah, I, I kind of think that as well." Actually, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I mean, Partridge obviously he wants the second series. He's living in a hotel in that in that series, and to be famous, he, he yeah, wants- absolutely. And when you when you read. I Partridge. We need to talk about Alan. His autobiography, the first one, um, and then there's the second one, Nomad. When you read those, and you sort of see his climbing up the the Norwich pole um, to, to become the biggest person in Norwich, and then to you know, and and you and I remember him sort of saying about if you look through my 1992 diary, it's like a who's who of anyone who gave me work in 1992, <laughs> and it's. It's that I don't know, just the, the the desire to be someone better, but constantly knocked back by his own inadequacies and exactly. yeah. mistakes. You know, he killed Forbes McAllister live on air in Know Me, Knowing You, and constantly sort of downplays that in his in his book. But um, obviously, he's, he's killed someone. So, what what is it about apart from the things we've been speaking about? What do you think it is that Partridge is? just hits the spot for you like it does me what what would you say i think i think it's the fact that there's a whole universe so in the day-to-day he was a a commentator who did sports commentary with a a very nasal quality to his voice and it's quite a different voice now it is yeah and and it almost is like it's grown as he's aged Mm -hmm. and his his body has become older i think the original sports uh, presenter was a little bit of David Coleman. Oh, it was all a bit of that, wasn't it? You know, studio and, uh, and and all of that. So I, th- I think that sort of those sports commentators of the day, you know, the football commentators were a bit like that, the sheepskin coat and absolutely, and, yeah. And wasn't it? Oh, tell us, how, tell us how he scored the goal. Um, yeah. You know, so there, there was a lot of that maybe into it. But then as he became as a sort of the chat show host, that, that sort of. Developed. I think so. I mean, I think there's obviously going to be. Perhaps that was slightly exaggerated because at the time it was a new character. It was, it was no way of knowing that that was going to become such a, such a big character. But, but it's the whole universe. You know, you've got the autobiography basically pens his entire life through childhood right the way to current day Partridge. Mm. Um, and everything lines up very well. All the dates match. 
it's it's so well written that you can you can pick any particular TV program and find the spot in the in the autobiography, and it matches up with what happens in the episodes. Yeah. It's really well done. Yeah. Um, and and so it's it, it's almost like a it's like a body of work. It's a whole life as opposed to just Brent snapshot for a couple of years filming The Office. Yeah. And of course, I mean, he's got this fabulous working relationship with uh, uh, the, the, the writer, of course, with, with um, Gibbons. Yeah, uh, and I can never pronounce his name, Imanu Imachi. Oh, sorry, yeah, Arma- um, Armando. Armando, yes, exactly. Sorry, Armando. <laughs> um, I'm sure you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't let that put you off putting me in your next series. Um, but um, that they are a brilliant team mm. and the day-to-day um obviously that's what became that was after the last book was released so that's you know that kind of continues with with, with his uh ongoing career um mm. it's another series coming of that he's also just done or well, just done last year he did the podcast as well from the oast house uh, six months ago that came out um and you can kind of see how he hasn't achieved the success that he wants, but he's got a nice house now at least. He's he's kind of very much, I think, more happy with his own self. Um right. so I so I think it's quite nice to sort of see a progression and, and there's an endearment, you know, an endurance to him. Is, um, is still in the uh, in the static home, do we think? Uh no, he's he's got a nice house in the country now. Oh, right. Um where he where he's uh, getting angry with people walking past on the public footpath. Right. <laughs> um, because he still has to give permission, even though it's a it's public footpath. So. Yeah. 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 So, so I've, I mean, that, that, that for me was the, how comedy changed. It went from that kind of family friendly comedies. Now that I watch on Netflix and I think these are awful, you know, I remember having bad. I used to love when it was on. I can't watch it at all now. It's just so badly. Yeah. Yeah. Aged. And, um, and so there was an edginess that came from Partridge, from The Office, comedies. There were there were occasional bits of swearing, but nothing too bad. You know, the odd swear word from Partridge, yeah, um, and in The Office as well. But but it was it was sort of edgy without. You know, you, you can you can say the f word if it's if it's right to say it. If it's yeah. he would have said at the time, mm. then it, it's it's. You know, I don't think that's offensive, really, unless someone absolutely abhors swearing. But um, it's it's going back to what we were saying earlier. When it's just done all the time, that wouldn't suit Alan. Alan wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't keep swearing. All the time. No. Uh, but um, it was only probably you probably count on your you know on, on your right hand how many times he actually he he, he said the f word. Um, yeah. yeah. So they they were. Um, there was a, the, another program that I adore is um, Ever Decreasing Circles. Right, yeah. So I was going to say, because I've not ever watched that. Right. And I think to, to round round up our yeah. evening, I think it would be nice actually just to, if you could just sort of explain what that is and, and why I would watch it. Okay. I should watch it. Another character, the central character is Martin, who is the most organised um man in the world basically he has he does his own diy his shed is perfect there's a drill there are the drill bits there are the screws everything is perfectly organized he's organized at work he would have the right pen 
and he'd have a spare pen and he'd have a pencil and a pencil sharpener, a spare pencil sharpener. He, he was just meticulous in everything. Yeah. Um, and I think his fight with the world was people that didn't take that sort of thing that seriously. So income, his wife was very, very tolerant. Um, and the next door neighbor, Paul, there was this lovely relationship where Paul always had a mate who was in something or another. He, he, well, actually, I've got a mate, Martin, who can, you would have a mate. And of course, Paul went to public school and Paul had a degree and Paul ran a successful hairdressing business. And Martin was just in vows, which was very important for Martin. But, uh, and he was probably very, very good at it. But he always felt he was in Paul's shadow. Mm-hmm. And Paul would always flirt a little bit with uh, Anne, Martin's wife. So there was this lovely little scenario um, and relationships. And then they had two neighbours who Martin really liked, Howard and Hilda. And I think that became a bit of an expression, didn't it? Howard and Hilda, two people that dressed alike. They always wore the same. Yes, of course, yeah. And they would go off hiking and they would be very prim and proper and very chintzy around the home. And Martin liked that because they... They, he, he felt they lived in a close, he used to refer to it as a close, close. And um, whereas Paul had an MG and was a bit flighty and, you know, quite often had a bit of a, a flirtatious girlfriend. And Martin was very, very straight laced. Didn't like that at all. It sounds like an element of the good life to it with the, the two neighbours. A little bit, a little bit. But I thought it was it was, it was a bit edgier than the good life. Mm-hmm. Um, good life, very, 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 very good. But... Um, I, I, I think there was there were very good scenarios in in ever decreasing circles. Each one was a very good standalone script, um, and uh, that was a, that was a real favourite of mine. Who who was the who were the actors? Oh, you're catching me out there, aren't you? <laughs> um, oh God, that's what Google's for. So that's all right. The, uh, have you got your phone? Can you can you Google it quickly? I've turned my phone off. Um, Oh, that's ridiculous. I mean, they're so famous, it's not true. Rich, uh, Paul Egan, I think, was... Uh, no, Paul... Let's have a look, shall we? Egan was... Um, uh, played Paul. Um, oh, for heaven's sake. Who played Martin and who played Anne? Richard Briers, of course. Richard Briers. Yeah. And you had Penelope Wilton. Penelope Wilton. There we go. So, really famous name. I'm, I'm, I apologise to them for not remembering their names, but um, he's, a, he's a brilliant actor. Uh, Briars, they, they all were. There were no bad performers in that at all. Yeah. Um, well, I like Richard Briars, so um, so I think I'll, I'll give it give it a watch. Look it up once you get into it. Yeah, it's not difficult to get into it, and he was just this um, crass sort of character, always behind Martin uh, uh, Paul next door. He would always be in his shadow. Fantastic. Um, so it's it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely program. I think I think it's very clever, very clever comedy. Lovely stuff. Well, mm. thanks very much for that, Mark. Um, it's been a real pleasure to have you on, on my first episode. Yes, it's a, it's a milestone episode then. Definitely Absolutely, yeah. Britain's number one podcaster. <laughs> Who knows, this could, uh, this could propel your career. Downwards, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's very kind of you. <laughs> no, thanks so much for being on. It's uh, it's All really right. nice to have have you on. Okay. All right. Um, have a lovely evening, and uh, I'll speak to you very soon. I guess. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure talking to you. Cheers.
Cheers. Take it easy.